You're listening to the Hope Assembly podcast with Pastor Ryan Day. For more information, you can visit us online at hopeassembly.org. Please enjoy this week's sermon. Hey, good morning, church. Thanks for tuning in once again to another live stream for Hope Assembly. We are so glad that you are here today. Today, we're going to continue our series seven. We're in a uh, seven part series about the statements that Jesus made while he was upon the cross. We're leading up through the season of Lent to Easter Sunday, which is pretty quick this year. April 4th, I believe, is Easter Sunday. And so we're on part three of our series, seven. Part one, we talked about the first statement of Jesus when he prayed a prayer for those who were crucifying him, his very enemies. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And last week, we talked about how Jesus was crucified between two criminals and he had a dialogue with one of the criminals in particular who asked him, uh, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, surely I tell you today you will be with me in paradise. Um, today's statement is going to be a little bit different than the other statements that we've heard, and we're going to dig into that here in a moment. But let's start with our anchoring text that we've been using, which is uh, what Jesus said to his disciples, Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, what Jesus declared to his disciples about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He said this, if anyone wants to become my follower... He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Before Jesus even, uh, you know, carried his cross up the uh, the hill of Golgotha, he had told his disciples that if you want to follow me, this is the path. You've got to take up your cross. You've got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And I, I imagine in this moment, as Jesus is hanging on the cross and making these statements, the disciples that are nearby and those who wrote these accounts were thinking to themselves about what Jesus had told them before he was crucified. If anyone desires to come after me, let him first deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And so we've been anchoring ourselves in that because we're asking the question through the series, like what does the cruciform life look like for us? So if we want to follow Jesus, we too have to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. So week one, we learned about how important it is for us to to know the way of forgiveness, to be able to forgive not just the people that we love that harm us, but also the enemies, the people maybe that we hate um, that harm us. How do we forgive those kind of people. And last week we talked about how we have to recognize that um, we don't get to decide who gets to be a part of the kingdom of God. We don't get to draw arbitrary lines in the sand and, and exclude people from God's kingdom. Rather, Jesus tells the criminal on the cross who is who is by all intents and purposes uh, receiving um, what he deserved, if you will. And Jesus looks at him and promises him paradise. So the first week was a prayer. The second week was a promise. And here we are in the third week. We're going to move out of the book of Luke. We're going to find ourselves in the book of John. And the the statement that we're going to talk about today, John is the only one who actually records this statement that Jesus makes from the cross. So if you have your Bible, open to John, and we're going to go to chapter 19. John chapter 19. And we're going to just start in verse 25. We're going to read just a couple verses here. John 19, verse 25 says this. Now, standing beside Jesus' cross were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. 
So when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing there, the disciple whom he loved is John, the one who's actually writing this account. Uh, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing there, he said to his mother, here are the statements, woman, look, here is your son. He then said to his disciple or to John, look, here is your mother. And from that very time, the disciple took her into his own home. So here is the third statement of Jesus. Uh, your, your scripture version might say, woman, behold your son, and then also behold your mother. Same sort of idea. The first thing I want to do here is I want to look at the people that are at the cross here. I want to look in particular at Mary, the mother of Jesus, among the faithful disciples who have stayed at the cross. So I think it's important that we take note of who is present and who is absent. We have four women and one male disciple who are accounted by John here staying at the cross. Meanwhile, most of the other disciples in fear, in trepidation, they have scattered and are not present in this moment. We have the accounts of Peter who is denying that he didn't even know this Jesus who is being crucified. But here we have four women who are standing by the cross. And I think it's important to point out what a picture of rock steady faithfulness that these women provide for us. They're teaching us as they stand by the cross of what it looks like to be faithful in times of chaos, in times of crisis. Now, I don't know about you, but I've had friends and I've heard people who've said to me before that women can't lead churches because they're just too emotional. And I'm here to tell you this morning that I think that this picture rebukes that notion. I think that this picture of these four women standing at the foot of, cro of the cross while Jesus is being crucified uh, reject this notion that women can't be in leadership. Look at the leadership of these women while all of the other disciples have been dispersed in fear, have ran away. Here we have these four women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, one of them, standing by at the cross as Jesus is being crucified, brutally being crucified. And so we want to look at Mary, the mother of Jesus. Imagine for a moment the emotion that Mary is going through, this mother of Jesus that she's experiencing as she's seeing her son being crucified. I think about you know, what might be going through the mind of Mary? Remember, Mary is the one who agonized over Jesus in birth. She was holding or beholding this bloodied newborn as he takes his first breaths, right? Just 33 years earlier, maybe she's reflecting about how she agonized over the birth of this child, how she had held him once, this bloodied baby in this, in this um, <clears throat> sort of stable-like environment, as he begins to take his first breaths in the earth, right? Wrapped in swaddling cloths. As she had laid his back against the wood of the manger on that Christmas morning. The first coming of Jesus, the incarnate one as an infant. And now in this moment, here is Mary again, agonizing, not over the birth of Jesus, but agonizing over Jesus, Jesus in his death. 
beholding the bloodied, crucified Christ as he takes his last breaths. Naked on a cross stands a loincloth that covers his body. His back is laid against the wood of the cross. Think about the imagery. Think about the emotion. Sit for a moment with what Mary must be feeling at the foot of this cross. Perhaps she's thinking back to the prophecy of Simeon when she took Jesus, when Joseph and Mary took Jesus to be dedicated in the temple and as they came into the temple, the prophet Simeon, who was promised that he would not see death until he saw the consolation of Israel, he sees them from afar. He runs to Mary. He takes baby Jesus from the arms of Mary and he begins to prophesy over Jesus. But then at the very end, he looks to Mary and he says to Mary that, 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 that this sword or a sword will pierce her soul. So in regards to this life of Jesus, there was going to come a moment in this life of Jesus where it will feel like a sword has pierced her soul. And this is that moment. And perhaps she's reflecting back upon that prophecy. This is what Simeon prophesied over as the sword is piercing her soul as she watched the baby she once held taking its first breath. Now, as a grown man crucified among thieves taking his final breaths. And the statements that come from Jesus, sort of two statements, but one sort of general idea here where he says, woman, behold your son. And then he looks to John, the disciple says, behold your mother. What? What is it that is happening in this moment? And, and I, as I said earlier, John's the only one to record this statement of Jesus. He says, woman, behold. He says to the disciple, behold. What does that word behold mean? Well, in the original language, that word behold simply means don't miss this. It's an emphasis on don't miss this. It also can be used as a way to introduce something new and something unexpected. So Jesus is getting ready to tell Mary and John at the foot of the cross, don't miss this. I'm getting ready to introduce and reveal something that is new and unexpected to you. It's important that we don't miss what it is that Jesus is revealing in these statements from the cross. So the question is, was Jesus simply taking care of family business? I mean, I've preached this text this way. I've heard people preach this text this way, that even in death, that Jesus is concerned for his mother. And I believe that he probably is concerned for his mother. Certainly, he has concern for those that are gathered at the foot of the cross. Certainly, he has concern for what it is that his mother is witnessing about her son who is being crucified. Certainly, there is concern there. But is that what this is really all about? Is this some sort of first Mother's Day experience, which we oftentimes call it or use it? And I would say no. 
I would say a better reading of what is happening here has nothing to do with Mother's Day and has nothing to do with Jesus sort of taking care of family business. Matter of fact, I would say Jesus has known for years now that he's going to go to the cross. So it would seem like a really, really poor planning to just now decide that he's going to take care of some family business and make sure that his mom is not left alone. By the way, Jesus has siblings that can take care of his mom, even if Joseph has passed on, which many biblical scholars believe that Joseph had passed on. But there are other siblings of Jesus that are available to take care of his mother. So I don't think that what's happening here is necessarily about Jesus just caring for his mother or taking care of some family business. I think that is bigger, that Jesus is establishing in this moment a new family, what we would call the ecclesia. Now, I've always sort of believed that the ecclesia, the people of God, the called out ones, the church, if you will, was established in Acts. And, and I think that we can say for sure, like the greater measure of the church was established in Acts. But perhaps this is the starting point of that, that this was the beginning moment of the ecclesia and the family of God being established. Matter of fact, E.C. Hoskins, who's a New Testament scholar, said this about this moment. He said, at the time of the Lord's death, a new family is brought into being. So something bigger is happening here. Jesus is establishing from the cross through this statement, woman, behold your son, and to John the disciple, behold your mother. He is establishing with the two of them this new family, this new ecclesia of God. Neither Mary nor John in this moment actually chose the other. It's not like Mary said, Jesus, when you die, could you could you put me in the care of John? Nor was it John saying, hey, Jesus, when you die, I would like to be the one who would be honored to take care of you. Neither one of them, neither Mary nor John chose the other. Why? Because it's important that we recognize that at the cross, the two of them became one. That the cross brings a oneness, not by who we decide gets to be at the cross. No, through the cross, Jesus is deciding and choosing how we become one in him. And this is the beginning of that. That at the cross, Mary and John, who didn't choose each other, were becoming one through the words of Jesus. Woman, behold your son, behold your mother. Fleming Rutledge, who I shared um, from last week, she's written a couple of books about Jesus's final words on the cross. They're really, really rich books. Um, and she is a Anglican priest, I believe, um, in a parish in New York City. But she said this, the disciples in this moment, right? Neither Mary nor John chose the other at the cross. They become one. She said this, the disciple and the woman are not individual people here. She said they are symbolic. They represent the way that the family ties are transcended in the church by the ties of the spirit. Let me say that again. The disciple and the woman are not individual people here. She says they are symbolic. They represent the way that the family ties are transcended in the church by the ties of 
the Spirit. There's something greater that is happening here. A bond of the Spirit in a new sort of family dynamic. And from that moment on, when Jesus says, woman, behold your son, and he says to John, behold your mother, the scripture says, from that moment on, the disciple took her to his own. Now, there are uh, most texts, actually, most modern translations say, like mine said, uh, from that very time, the disciple took her into his own home. And so there's sort of this idea, there's been this idea that's been promulgated throughout uh, time now that that John took mother Mary, the mother of Jesus, and she lived in his home. But the original text does not say that. Matter of fact, the original writing in the original Greek language says nothing about John's home whatsoever. All that it says is that from that moment, the disciple took her to his own. Took her to his own that very hour is another version that said that. Meaning that he considered her as his very own family from that moment on. Woman. Behold your son, John, behold your mother. From that moment on, John beheld her or took her as his very own family, as his very own um, mother himself. Like the ecclesia was beginning to break forth in this moment. I hope this is making sense. Now, what I want to just focus on for just a moment here is this last idea that as I read this, this sort of reminded me, the statement of Jesus saying, woman, behold your son and behold your mother. This statement remind me, reminded me of another story that John tells. And again, this other story that John tells, he's the only one of the gospel writers who tells this story. And similar to this story, in both cases, John uses the word woman rather than the word mother. And I think it's important to stop here and say that that's not disrespectful. Like in America today, if kids look at their mom and be like, woman, that's disrespectful. In this language, in this time, it was not a disrespectful way. It was actually a very respectful way to speak to um, a woman and an elder. Maybe not to your mother, but um, it wasn't disrespectful. We know that. But in both of these stories that only John tells in his gospel account, Jesus uses this term woman to speak to Mary rather than mother. So the other story that I'm thinking about is what's known as Jesus's first miracle, where he turned water into wine at the wedding of Cana. So here we have the wedding of Cana and we have the cross. And in both instances, Jesus refers to his his mother as woman. And then he makes a declaration to her that is critical. Okay. And so let me tell you real quick, the story is in John 2, if you want to go back and read it, it's the wedding of Cana. And the scripture just said that there was a wedding that was taking place in Cana and Jesus's mother was there. And and Jesus and, and his disciples were also invited to the wedding. And there came a point in the wedding where they ran out of wine. And this is not good in weddings in first century uh, Hebrew culture. You run out of wine, you're mocked, you're shamed. This is a week-long type celebration, a week-long festival of uh, of ceremonies and wedding feasts. And so here they are, and they have run out of wine. And for some reason, Jesus's mom is concerned that they've run out of wine. There's some implications here that perhaps there's relation to the 
the one who's getting married and she's concerned about the shame that will come. Regardless, she uh, says to Jesus, we have run out of wine. And Jesus responds to her, woman, my time has not yet come. Or woman, the hour is not yet. So some dynamic is happening here where Jesus is saying, listen, it's not time yet for me to reveal who I actually am, for me to, to show or display forth who I actually am, uh, that being the Messiah, the King of Kings, the, the Lord of Lords, all of those sort of things, the Savior. And Mary seems to ignore Jesus when he says, woman, my time has not yet come. And she looks at all of um, the helpers and she says to them, do whatever he says, listen to whatever he says and do whatever he says. And so Jesus tells them to go get water and fill these ceremonial pots. There are six ceremonial washing pots that are there. And he says, go get water and fill these pots. Now, these ceremonial washing pots are a part of the old covenant. They're a part of the cleansing um, elements of, of sacrifice and, and uh, just the old covenant system. I don't have a lot of time to get into that, but that's what they were there for. They were old covenant icons, old covenant items uh, used for cleansing, used for ceremonies of the old covenant. And Jesus tells him, go get water and fill these. That would have been quite the process to fill these six water pots, but nonetheless, they do what Jesus says. Jesus takes and draws from the water pots that have been filled with water and says, go take this to the master of ceremonies uh, that he may drink of it. They are concerned because it's water, it's not wine. They take it to the master of ceremonies and as he drinks, the water has be, been made uh, into wine. It's the first miracle of Jesus. And we know this because the master of ceremonies declares over this wine that normally um, you serve the best wine first. And when everybody has gotten a little bit drunk, you bring in all the cheap wine because they're drunk and they won't know the difference. And he says, but this this wine is the best wine that's been saved for last. And so he's making a declaration about that. And there is a beautiful imagery that is happening here of a movement from the old covenant covenant into the new covenant. There's an imagery of what Jesus has come to do. He's come to turn water into wine. He's come to take what the ceremonial cleansing pots of water used to represent, sort of a righteousness, a oneness with God, an acceptance with God, and he is turning it into a wine. What used to be these ceremonial cleansings have now become celebration and worship, which is what wine represents, the new covenant, the new kingdom, the new way. And Jesus turns water, the old covenant, into wine, a picture of the new covenant. The the older was not as good, and the new covenant is the best. You saved the best for last. So I hope you're seeing this imagery. But Jesus told her, woman, my time is not yet. Now, fast forward a couple of years to the end of Jesus' ministry as he's hanging on the cross. Just before he went to the cross, he was praying the great high priestly prayer, John chapter 17. And as he prays to the Father, he says, Father, my hour or my time has come. To his mom at the very beginning of his ministry, woman, my time has not yet come. To the Father, Father, my time has come. And now, fast forward, he is being nailed to the cross. And he looks at Mary and he says, woman, behold your son. He's making some declarations here. 
The first story is about water into wine, the old covenant into the new covenant. This last story is about an old family dynamic into a new family dynamic. The old family dynamic is about who you natu who's naturally your family. What family were you born into? Sort of the old covenant idea of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Blessed to be a blessing. There's a family lineage that these things ran through. And all of a sudden, that's breaking forth into a brand new covenant of a spiritual family. And in this spiritual family, it's not about your lineage. It's not about where you were born or who you were born to, your natural family, but now it's a spiritual family that has all become one in Christ through the cross that Jesus is, is hanging on. And this new family, this new family now knows no boundaries. That in Christ, Galatians tells us that in Christ there is now neither Jew nor Greek. So he's breaking down these boundaries. Think about as well that the, the, the sign that was put over Jesus' head that said King of the Jews was written in three different languages in the Hebrew, uh, Latin, and Greek, or Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. And they may not realize what they were doing when they did that, but it's almost like declaring prophetically that Jesus is the King of all peoples, that he's the King over all kings, right? And so in Jesus, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. It's what Paul tells us in Galatians. What's happening? The breaking down of the boundaries of family dynamics and power dynamics happen at the cross. And at the cross, every single one of us created in the image of God become one in Christ. Isn't that beautiful? That Jesus says, woman, behold your son, and John, behold your mother. He's saying, listen, I'm getting ready. Pay attention because I'm getting ready to do a new and unexpected thing here. I am binding you together as the beginning of this new family. It breaks forth in greater detail in Acts chapter 2, bringing you into this new family, this ecclesia that transcends the natural family order because it is a spiritual kingdom of God. God family order. <clears throat> Fleming Rutledge said it like this, how we should interact with this sort of kingdom dynamic now is this, when the Christian community is working the way it's supposed to, people are brought together who have absolutely nothing in common who may have diametrically different views on things, who may even actively dislike each other. She goes on to say, the Christian community, when it is not grieving the Holy Spirit, comes into being without regard to differences. Personal likes and dislikes have nothing to do with the body of Christ. What she's saying here is that the kingdom of God, when we are functioning as the people of God and not grieving the Holy Spirit, we lay aside our personal preferences for the sake of the kingdom of God, for the sake of oneness in the kingdom of God. What a beautiful idea. I love, I love, I love this idea. Without regard to difference, appearance, personal likes and dislikes have nothing to do with the body of Christ. Now, when Jesus is on this cross, he was doing more on the cross than simply just forgiving the sin of the individual. 
No, what Jesus was doing is Jesus was establishing a new covenant, establishing a new kingdom way, establishing a new family or a new people of God, a community where we can practice love. See, this is why I, uh, I'm a firm believer in the local church. This is why this pandemic has been such a struggle for so many of us, because the local church calls us to a place where we can practice love, where we learn how to love one another. That teaches us how to love our neighbor. It teaches us how to even love our enemies. Um, there are lots of people who believe in a movement of home churches. And well, I'm not opposed to a movement of home churches where I think the home church movement lacks is that oftentimes I will only invite people to my home that I like, that are like me. Whereas in a normal community church, what happens is we throw open the doors and we say, Lord, bring who you will. And it doesn't matter where they fall on the political spectrum. It doesn't matter where they fall on <clears throat> the ethnic spectrum. It doesn't matter where they fall on the social economic spectrum that we can all come together and we can worship together in this one space, lifting up the name of Jesus. And that in this, we become family and we learn how to love and pray. Practice love in this new transcendent family where we are one through the cross of Christ. It's like what the uh, radical Catholic Dorothy Day once said. She said, you can't practice love without community. This is why it's so important. On the cross, this third statement of Jesus, he was establishing the new kingdom community, the ecclesia, a new transcendent family of God. Woman, behold your son. To the disciple John, behold your mother. Check this out. Don't miss it. I'm getting ready to do something new and unexpected. I am through this cross creating for myself a new spiritual family that transcends the natural family, a people who were called out to be separate, who become one through the cross of Christ. The Bible tells us that one day every nation, tribe, tongue will will bow, will worship together at the feet of Jesus. May we embrace that idea even now in this moment, the oneness of the kingdom of God, the family of the kingdom of God. I don't know about you. I want to be a part of that family and I want to be uh, <clears throat> inviting everyone I meet, embracing all of those that I can to come Please be a part of this family of God. You are welcome here at this family table. Amen. I hope that blesses you. Let me pray. And then I'm going to pray a blessing of your father. We're so grateful for these statements of Jesus that we read through scripture. Help us, Lord, to synthesize them. Help us to think upon them, to contemplate them, to, to wrestle with these statements, Lord. We're grateful that Jesus, through this statement, was creating this new family dynamic, this transcendent spiritual family dynamic. Help us, God, to participate in that dynamic in our lives, in our communities. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before you go, let me pray this blessing over you. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope.
God bless you. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening. It's our desire to lead people to know Christ and to make Him known. If you'd like to support the ministry of Hope Assembly, go to hopeassembly.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.